This is the Epilog Audio Experience. The language and content on this podcast may be unsuitable for certain audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to History Chatter. Last week we were talking about khichdi, an Indian food that went global. and changed its uh, textures dimensions and acquired a new name um this week we will be talking about an indian leader who went global today this week really happens to be the 125th anniversary of netaji subhash chandra bose now how are we to read netaji bose on the eve of his 125th birth anniversary now that there is an official plan to observe the republic day celebrations this year beginning from january the 23rd which also happens to be netaji's birthday are we to welcome this move as a new tradition being launched in honor of the memory of bose or his legacy or are we to dismiss it as a cynical attempt to profit from the intensely nationalist appeal of bose how indeed are we as citizens of india to remember bose in the 21st century roughly 100 years after he had made his political debut in 1921 two contradictory episodes readily come to mind In um, 2011, Professor Sugato Bose of Harvard University had just published his Majesty's Opponent, uh, Bose's new biography of his legendary grand uncle. He had been speaking to a young reporter in Kolkata, Professor Bose, uh, probably as part of uh, the book promotion activities. The interview had been going smoothly until. the reporter asked professor bose what he had to say about the credibility or otherwise of the various wild rumors over the decades that uh, subhas bose did not die or that he had been spotted in remote locations in mysterious disguises professor bose must have been horrified or at least exasperated at the audacity of the journalist He had been writing and speaking at length over the years confirming Bose's death in a plane crash in August 1945 yet good manners dictated that he could not possibly be less than graceful he broke into a tired smile that was not exactly a historian's job he said even though an anthropologist was most welcome to take it up as a separate project Later in 2019 a popular bengali movie called gumnami was released the storyline of the movie revolved around those very rumors around the survival and imminent reappearance of bose almost every serious practitioner of history as a professional academic discipline dismissed the movie as a wild flight of fancy yet the movie was commercially successful and went on to win a few critical awards it would seem as though there still exists a desperate longing in popular perception 
at least in West Bengal, that Bose did not die and would reappear someday, presumably as a messiah, to address a range of unresolved problems. Is it at all possible to initiate a dialogue between Netaji as a character in documented history and the Netaji who continues to survive as a legend in popular aspiration, as a potential messiah to set right everything that may have gone wrong with India or at least with West Bengal? It is not exactly a new question. Nirodsi Chaudhary published an insightful paper in 1953 addressing this very question. His robust analysis of Netaji's legacy and legend bears a recall yet. Chaudhary argued broadly that the profusion of legends about Netaji's life and career emerged in a vacuum in the wake of his disappearance from the scene of political action in India. Whenever the people of India rose to valorize Netaji or the INA, Chowdhury claimed they were in reality airing their pent-up grievances against something else. It could be America, it could be widespread poverty, or it could be bureaucratic red tape. Netaji's politics was defined primarily by the appeal of his magnetic personality. He did not appear to follow any consistent ideology to the extent that uh, he saw nothing wrong in seeking help for India's liberation from, on the one hand, communist Russia, and on the other hand, Nazi Germany, both around roughly the same time. Those who failed for him typically could not resist the magnetism of his arresting personality. That at least partly explains how he had uh, snatched victory from the jaws of defeat while contesting for the post of uh, the president of the Indian National Congress for the second consecutive time in 1939 against um, the public disapproval of Gandhi or the ways in which the Indian National Army had been able in very quick time to forge an intensely national and secular ethos among its members, irrespective of profound differences of class, caste, religion, and region. Now, Chaudhary hedged a few guesses against this background as to what could have possibly happened if Netaji had returned unhurt to India after the Second World War. America or Britain would have had to make a public decision about how to penalize Bose for his alleged war crime, as it were. After all, Bose had waged a war against the victorious allies. No decision about his fate could possibly be taken in secret or kept from Indian public for too long. That would in all probability have to carry out a public trial. People of India would almost certainly erupt in rage against any major punishment for Netaji, such as exile or long jail sentence. On the other hand, if Netaji were to return home unhurt, he would have immediately become the greatest challenge to the established Congress leadership at the time. 
he had the potential to offer a viable leadership to practically every force that opposed the leadership of Gandhi or Nehru. For all we know, this new formation might well have brought forces of the left and the right under a common organizational umbrella. Perhaps there would be an agitation against peaceful transfer of power. Perhaps the mainstream Congress leadership would have had to accept Netaji's supreme leadership of an agitation like that. That compromise was, however, unlikely to last long, for Netaji's relation with the Congress leadership had reached a point of no return several years ago. There is no end, really, to imagining such counterfactuals. Through them, Chaudhuri was making the obvious point that the eventuality of a physically alive Netaji returning after the war had the potential to steer the course of Indian history towards vastly different directions. Now, wild popular support for Netaji and the INA often obscures the basic reality that virtually every major Indian political formation had displayed serious reservations against his exploits during the war, even as they grudgingly acknowledged the intensity of his courage and patriotism. Major leaders in India openly called for resistance against the INA till as late as it had reached the doorsteps of India. Nehru himself was on record in 1942 that even though he respected Netaji's patriotism, he would not hesitate to personally take up arms if Netaji were to invade India with backup support from a fascist power. Communists did not even bother to qualify their condemnation. They called him fascist, plain and simple. Muslim League had um, been largely quiet until much later when it had become clear that the INA trials were going to influence the process of transfer of power. They were now happy to discard silence in favor of a spirited defense of the INA soldiers, merrily joining hands with senior Congress leaders in the defense team. Socialists such as Jayaprakash Narayan maintained a fine balance between publicly acknowledging Netaji's high patriotism and expressing reservations against his alliance with uh, fascist powers such as Japan. On the whole, few leading voices in Indian nationalist circles were ready to publicly offer unqualified acclaim to Netaji or his political or military choices during the war. And yet, as if by a miracle, the tide of resistance or reservation suddenly turned into waves after irresistible waves of unqualified endorsement and uncritical glorification the moment the schedule for INA trials were announced. The people of India erupted in pious rage against the British colonial state to such an extent that even Mahatma Gandhi, transfixed, wrote as if the INA had cast a spell. That magical moment, however, 
did not last too long. The Congress was entirely rational in its approach to the INA beyond the trial. Even though it invested heavily in their defense during the court-martial, there was no place for them in the independent Indian army. The success of the INA consisted largely of their political and not military appeal. That too, during a particular moment in history. Against this context, Chaudhuri claimed that Netaji's absence made it easier for all parties in the wake of a massive groundswell of popular support to revise their earlier position and offer unconditional support to the INA. If, on the other hand, Netaji were to return safely, all of them would have had to face him in reality. His absence, on the other hand, made available to every claimant to his legacy a freedom, a freedom to interpret his political um, legacy in ways that would appear to overestimate his affinity to that particular claimant. It is against this context that Netaji was reborn soon after his disappearance and probable death as a legend. Netaji as a legend soon enough morphed into a safe outlet for everyone with a pent-up rage and without a readily available platform to convert it into an organized political mobilization. What the historical Netaji as a leader had actually managed to accomplish gradually receded to the background, while what he could have been or done first bubbled up to the surface. It is, after all, a matter of fact that the INA had very little to show by way of military victories. The original purpose to which it had been dedicated. Specialists in military history have written about it at some length. There is absolutely no dispute that the primary appeal of the INA to the people of India was almost wholly political. Members of the INA were and are celebrated for their secular ethos, their passionate nationalism, and their resilience against extremely difficult conditions, which they fought valiantly with pitifully limited resources. Similarly, the question of Netaji's political legacy has remained somewhat open-ended, open, that is, to purportedly rival claims and claimants. His politics, as I said, was organized around an uncompromising aspiration for liberation of India or complete independence, meaning a total or unconditional freedom from British colonial rule. It was never particularly tethered to any consistent ideology. It was based on passionate mass support and audacious adventurism. Erection of personality cults would be an entirely normal affair within the horizon of this variant of political practice. Bose's charisma was the very force which virtually cast a spell 
on thousands of men and women who would not hesitate to dedicate their lives responding to his calls. At the same time, this very physicality and immediacy of his appeal was virtually impossible to capture or to preserve in an institutional form. This peculiar combination or juxtaposition of the immensity of Netaji's appeal and its fundamental resistance to being captured or contained in a safely manageable form, whether doctrinal or institutional, was always going to make it a potentially explosive, if somewhat open-ended proposition. It is no wonder that over time, Netaji's place in the history of modern India came to be lodged in the surreal domain of what could or could not have been. Now, there's a risk of oversimplification here. Are we unwittingly reducing the virtually two decades long and eventful political career of Netaji in India before the war to the singular point of his greatest political triumph in absentia after the war? After all, he had been active in politics since 1921. He'd suffered a long exile in Burma since 1924 and was a leading light of the Congress as early as 1930. He had been to Europe during the 30s, which offered him a useful opportunity to observe the operation of fascism and Nazism from close quarters. His differences with Gandhi and by association with Nehru had been public enough since the 30s, by the end of which he'd be made to leave the Congress and set up his own political party. Before that, though, he would at least for a while successfully capture the Congress despite Gandhi's explicit resistance. Finally, there was the dramatic episode of his disappearance from a house arrest and reappearance in Europe following a series of escapades. How does one make sense of as meteoric a career as that? And yet, popular memories of Netaji Bose across India usually revolves around his leadership of the INA. Perhaps he had himself willed for his memory to be so recognized. As a matter of fact, Bose had acquired the honorific Netaji during his INA days. Sugato Bose's His Majesty's Opponent, probably the latest biography of Netaji by a professional historian, offers an indirect confirmation of this assumption. The opening chapter features Netaji Bose in Singapore in July 1943 taking over the reins of INA as its supreme commander. He was happy. He said in the inaugural address that Providence has selected the day for letting him declare to the whole world the birth of the army of independent India. He called for a march to the Red Fort while the soldiers responded with cries of Delhi Chalo. He saw a real second front to the war of India's liberation 
open up right under his eyes. He would later write of the day as, and I quote, the proudest day of my life, unquote. Of course, the final act of that play exceeded his expectation by a long distance, even though it did not quite follow his script. Sugata Bose wrote of the popular upsurge around the INA trials and the swift rally of support around Netaji as if Bose had himself been pulling the strings, meaning even he could not possibly have imagined uh, a more dramatic denouement. Literally or metaphorically, the years during the war, particularly the two years from mid-1943 to mid-1945, were clearly the most successful or high-profile moment in Netaji's career as a public figure. As is widely known, even though the court-martial recommended exemplary punishment to the INS soldiers under trial, the Viceroy was virtually compelled to commute their sentences, for all practical purposes setting them free. Yet, the greatest irony about these two wildly successful years in Netaji's life was that he had to live them away from his motherland. It was as if his being absent from his motherland was now a precondition for his public profile to shoot up. How then are we to look back at Netaji's political or historical legacy? It is probably impossible to work out a universally acceptable perspective. Given the complexities I, I spoke about uh, in, in uh, the last few minutes, any reasonable approach to his enduring salience, however, has to reckon with a few incontrovertial facets of his leadership or political style. First, if there was a single objective which tied the various phases of his career together, it was his uncompromising commitment to India's political liberation at any cost. He was not skeptic to any means whatsoever, foregrounding ends over means all along. This approach he had probably inherited from the extremist or militant nationalist leaders in early 20th century Bengal. He was drawn to the cult of revolutionary violence. Uh, from boyhood, and that fate only grew stronger over time. Two, Netaji was devoted to the conviction that despite the immense diversity of India as a geography, especially in terms of language, religion, and regional cultures, the idea of India as a cultural unity and continuity was on the whole sustainable and could not be compromised under any circumstance. It may be useful to, to recall in this context that he had quite explicitly recommended Hindustani in Roman script as the future national language of India. Three, even though he had been a devotee of the mother goddess 
and a visibly practicing Hindu in private life, he had refused to grant religion any public role. He had never budged from the conviction that Indian nationalism, while in command, had to necessarily rise above narrower group identities, such as regionalism, caste, or religion. The INA under his supreme command was probably the most visible instance of this principle in practice. Four, Bose considered himself a socialist and a communist in spirit since the 1920s. He wanted independent India to be a socialist country with a strong central government and a planned economy. However, he had never formally signed up either with the Communist Party or with the Congress Socialists. On occasions, he publicly acclaimed fascist states in Europe, even though he was clear that independent India must always remain a democracy. Five, he was quite clear on empowering women. He did not write at length on the question, of course, though in letters to the women in his family, he mentioned that fulfillment in life for women was not limited to cooking or rearing children, and that they must consider devoting themselves to larger causes. The Rani Jhansi Brigade in the Indian National Army, which consisted entirely of women, is probably the most obvious example of his investment in the woman's cause. As a matter of fact, the INA government ran a Ministry of Women's Affairs. Six, his distance from the mainstream of the Congress, which led finally to his departure from the party, was more or less unbridgeable. He would often call for violent or revolutionary mass movement since the 30s. He was particularly upset with the reluctance of the Congress to force the hands of the colonial state especially during the Second World War, when he finally decided to break free and chart his own course. If he were to return alive after the war, he would not have been in a position to share a common political platform with the mainstream Congress. Seven, irrespective of how we choose to read Netaji's career, it is fairly certain that if there was a time when Netaji had been able to run an institution without any opposition or to the best of his ability, it has to be the two years between uh, 1943 and 45 in Southeast Asia. It is there among the INA that he had been most revered and secured the most enduring loyalties. It is time now really to face up to some bitter truths. Almost every major biographer of Netaji, and especially the professional historians among them, has accepted that he had passed away in a plane crash in August 1945. It has nonetheless caused a great deal of dispute, presumably for lack of photos, death certificates, or immediate announcements. The government of India alone ordered as many as three inquiry commissions looking into the question of Netaji's disappearance. As things stand, as of now, it is well nigh impossible to offer a universally satisfactory conclusion 
to questions around Netaji's final moments. There are instances of perfectly sane individuals devoting half a lifetime to solving the mysteries surrounding Moses' last days. It has over the years crystallized into a thicket of conspiracy theorists and they are no longer possible, I mean really not possible for any reasonable intervention to clear out. Now that exactly is why it is high time to flip the question. Why do so many perfectly reasonable minds refuse to believe that Netaji had died in that plane crash? Even if the best their inquiries can do is speculate on what Netaji could have done if he had survived. Isn't it their longing for Netaji to survive and somehow reappear more of a desperate cry for a political leadership to somehow put together a viable platform to protest against everything that is presumably wrong with their present? Now, Neeraj Chaudhary in 1953 had listed some such grievances, including anger with the USA, frustration at uh, excessive red tapism, growing poverty, and political irrelevance of the middle class professionals, or Hindu majoritarian politics, and an overall loss of trust at the current leadership. Perhaps it is time to stop running after the mysteries of how or why Netaji did not return. Instead, it may well be more useful to begin researching the various myths about his survival and return. After all, when Netaji found all roads ahead of him blocked, he had to step back and start carving his own roads. This very popular longing for Netaji to return offers some political capital yet to various forces even to this day. Reports or rumors about anything relating to Netaji's death or afterlives still continues to generate a good deal of public curiosity and even brisk business, such as that forgettable Bengali movie called Gumnami, Bear Out. Every year these days, one hears of uh, yet another series being made on Bose's life. Sure enough, the legend of Bose delivers handsome returns. Or else, hard-nosed businessmen would not make investments in dramatizing it over and over again. Now, that may be why the union government sometimes ago declassified some files about Netaji. Testing waters probably, on how much prospects of some new truths about Netaji emerging still excite his admirers. In all likelihood, the current round of initiatives linking Netaji's birth anniversary and the Republic Day festivities as part of a single series is yet another attempt by yet another political formation to appropriate his legacy once more. Intriguingly enough, public celebration of Netaji's birthday uh, began, at least in Bengal, as early as 1946, immediately after he had reportedly died. Those of us who grew up in West Bengal since then have been quite familiar 
with successive celebrations of Netaji's birthday and the Republic Day in roughly the same fashion. Here's how it would be. There'd be the mandatory march past with student bands playing rousing tunes, followed by uh, the garlanding of a photo or a statue of Netaji. Most of these photos or statues featured him in khaki or olive green military fatigues. Moments later, either a local intellectual or a teacher would hold forth on the sacrifices made by Netaji and other revolutionaries. They'd exhort the students to be proud of their legacy and to try to be as bold and as dedicated to the country. The students would finally be gifted some confectionaries and asked to disperse. It felt like an annual ritual, like the pujas or the annual exams, something one had to be part of as a matter of course, something that had become a rite of passage of sorts. It did not amount to anything more than going through the motions. This template had been normalized for the last 70 or so years in virtually every neighborhood, village or schools in West Bengal. In an ironic revival of Gokhale's famous one-liner about Bengal anticipating India, the Union government probably wants to replicate this very template all over the country this year. It will not amount to anything more than going through the motions. Netaji was a special man, and I think we should now set him free. What do you think? Please let us know, and I'll see you next week.